We are back. Let us indeed do the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for classified humor, such as it is, after the Central Intelligence Agency decided to embrace social media and has now joined both Facebook and Twitter. Reportedly, the agency's first tweet was, we can neither confirm nor deny that this is our first tweet, end quote. Apparently, this piece of alleged humor was retweeted over 75,000 times in the first few hours. And as we understand it, 74,000 of those were then intercepted by the NSA, which we hope got pretty tired of the joke. At any rate, still according to the week, it was a bad week last week for boy toys after a 69-year-old woman was charged with having sex in public with her 49-year-old paramour at a senior community that calls itself, quote, Florida's friendliest retirement hometown. And it was apparently an ugly week last week for casing the joint after a male thief reportedly wearing a dress, crotchless panties, and a wig broke into an adult store in Australia by dropping through the ceiling. When confronted by the shop's owner, he reportedly pelted her with sex toys and scurried back up onto the roof, at which point he was arrested by police. To which we just have to add, fill in your own joke here. And although we're hoping to be uh, in contact with our Australian correspondent, Pamela Sue Taylor, before this hour is up, We're not sure it'd be fair to ask her about this episode down under. And here's one we have to like from the Only in America file, again from the week, which is that a black man was wrongfully accused of being an illegal taxi driver after he was spotted dropping off his light-skinned biracial wife at work. Car salesman Dan Keyes Jr., age 66, says taxi and limousine commission agents seized his car for eight days, insisting that his quote, white female, unquote, passenger, must have been a paying customer. Keys is now suing. And no, we've never heard of the Taxi and Limousine Commission either. And if you know something about these clowns, please drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. Oh, and speaking of email, we want to thank the feedback from Michelle as regards our chat last week with Pete McCloskey. Said Michelle, thanks for a great interview. McCloskey was a great man in his day. I hope there's more to come. Keep up the good work, your loyal listener. In fact, Michelle, there is a great deal more to come. We have at least an hour in the can from Pete McCloskey, and we'll probably be airing some of that on next week's program. Speaking of those who have written us, we want to thank Celia, who listens to us up on KZFR and Chico for some wonderful things she posted recently, which I told her I was liable to use on the program, which she approved of, which is a categorization of how men might want to consider dealing with women. We think this might be a useful guide to communication with women that men may want to consider memorizing. The prospective communications were categorized as dangerous, safer, safest, and ultra-safe. For example, under dangerous would be, what's for dinner? A safer alternative would be, can I help you with dinner? Safest would be, where would you like to go for dinner? With ultra-safe being, here, have some wine. Likewise, classified under dangerous was, are you wearing that? The safer alternative being, you sure look good in brown. The safest being, wow, look at you. 
but ultra safe being here, have some wine. Under dangerous would be, what did you do all day? Safer alternative would be, I hope you didn't overdo it today. <laughs> With safest being, you know, I've, I've always loved you in that robe. Of course, ultra safe being here, have some wine. And finally, a dangerous communication would be, what are you so worked up about? A safer alternative would be, could we be overreacting? But the safest would be, here's my paycheck. And finally, among dangerous communications, there would be, should you be eating that? <laughs> a safer alternative would be, you know, there's a lot of apples left. But the safest would be, can I get you a piece of chocolate with that? But as always, the ultra safe communication would be, here, have some wine. We also want to note uh, an inquiry sent us by Dean about uh, our opinion on this uh, tenure defeat for California teachers. Last week, of course, a California judge dealt teachers unions a major blow by striking down the state's teacher tenure laws. Superior Court Judge Rolf Treos said the job protections which are granted teachers after just 18 months and dictate that layoffs can be carried out on the basis of seniority, are unconstitutional because they allow grossly ineffective teachers to damage the education of students, especially those in low-income areas. This is an area where, uh, well, I'm finding it hard to come down on one side or the other. Hard to believe for Radio Parallax, I know. But while it's certainly true that we're in the middle of an educational crisis in this country and that it's probably not a good idea to keep around lousy teachers, I do want to say that it was always... Uh, my impression, based on having two parents as teachers, I do want to note that it was always my impression, based on having uh, two teachers as parents, that um, a lot of the problems in education stemmed from administration. And a great deal of that was dictated by politics. To, to which I might want to add, thank God there are some good administrators out there. Things would even be in worse shape than they are. So let's mull that over and instead talk about another area related to uh, education, the fact that people getting educations in this country are graduating with crushing student debt. Last week, according to Anita Kumar and Stephanie Haven, writing for the McClatchy Washington Bureau, President Obama has extended relief for those with student loans. To quote from the piece, in an effort to combat escalating college debt, President Barack Obama on Monday expanded a program that allows borrowers to cap their loan payments at 10% of their incomes. The White House estimates that the plan could help an additional 5 million borrowers. Obama's action used his executive power, which is curious. He's also urging a divided Congress to do more. He should be, he should be urging a divided Congress to do something. But this is looking grim in an era where... Uh, Jobs just don't seem to be had, since we've shipped off so many of them to China, among other things. Well, let's quote from a piece by Richard Chang from the Sacramento Bee last Monday. He noted that college graduates in the class of 2014 are entering a job market with the lowest unemployment rates since most were in high school. But that doesn't mean they have their pick of jobs. Graduating seniors have found they must work hard to find meaningful employment calling dozens of employers, attending every job fair on the calendar, and networking as much as possible. 
course, we would note that we did hoot with derision a bit uh, about the the Philip Reese piece in the Bee some while back, some some weeks back about how law degrees are not a guarantee of work. To quote from the piece, Aaron Ryberg spent three years running the gauntlet at the University of the Pacific's McGeorge School of Law in Sacramento. She graduated last year and passed the state bar exam. Now she's working at a job that doesn't require a law degree. Her salary is significantly less than McGeorge's yearly tuition of roughly $45,000. She owes about $150,000 in student debt. And uh, if you think we're going to feel sorry for a lot of lawyers having a hard time finding work, well, you can think again. But we would have to agree that for law students, as for all types of students, this student loan situation is out of control. In fact, Matt Taibbi wrote about this, I believe, in Rolling Stone last August. Of course, Matt never pulls his punches in the headlines, which were ripping off young America, the college loan scandal. Subheadline, the federal government has made it easier than ever to borrow money for higher education, saddling a generation with crushing debts and inflating a bubble that could bring down the economy. The piece asks, how is this happening? Adding that it's complicated, but throw off the mystery and what you'll uncover is a shameful and oppressive outrage that for years now has been systematically perpetrated against a generation of young adults. For this story, said Taibi, I interviewed people who have developed crippling mental and physical conditions, who considered suicide, who have given up hope of having children, who were forced to leave the country, or who even have entered a life of crime because of their student debts. He added, they all take responsibility for their own mistakes. They know they didn't arrive at gorgeous campuses for four years of boozing, bawling, and bong hits by way of anybody's cattle car. But they're angry too, and they should be, because the underlying cause of all that later life distress and heartache, the reason they carry such crushing, life-alteringly huge college debt, is that our university tuition system really is exploitative and unfair designed primarily to benefit two major actors. First in line are the colleges and universities and the contractors who build their extravagant athletic complexes, hotel-like dormitories, and God knows what other campus embellishments. For these little regional economic empires, the federal student loan system is essentially a massive and ongoing government subsidy, one funded mostly by emotionally vulnerable parents but now increasingly paid for in the form of federally-backed loans to a political constituency, low- and middle-income students that have virtually no lobby in Washington. Next is the government itself. While it's not commonly discussed on the Hill, the government actually stands to make an enormous profit on the president's new federal student loan system, an estimated $184 billion over 10 years. A boondoggle paid for by hyperinflated tuition costs and fueled by a government-sponsored predatory lending program that makes even the most ruthless private credit card company seem like a save-the-panda charity. Why is this happening? The answer lies in a sociopathic marriage of private sector greed and government forces that will make you shake your head in wonder at the way modern America sucks blood out of its young. It's a long piece. We don't have time to go into it, but uh, we recommend that you do so, dear listener. Matt Taibbi is, uh, is becoming, I think, a national treasure. We want to quote also from a piece by Thomas Frank, which came out about a week or so ago. Its title was, Colleges are full of it. Behind the three-decade scheme to raise tuition, bankrupt generations, and hypnotize the media. To quote from Frank, The price of a year at college has increased more than 1,200% over the last 30 years, 
far outpacing any other price the government tracks. Food, housing, cars, gasoline. Thanks to tuition prices, young Americans routinely start adult life with a burden unknown to any previous cohort and whose ruinous effects we can only guess at. On the assumption that anyone in that generation still has a taste for irony, I offer the following quotation on the subject drawn from one of the earliest news stories about the problem of soaring tuition. The newspaper was the Washington Post. The speaker was an assistant dean at a college that had just announced a tuition hike of 19%. And the question before him was how much further tuition increases could go. He was quoted as saying, maybe all of a sudden this bubble's going to burst. How much will the public take? Oh, said Frank, we would take quite a lot, as it happened. It was 1981 when the assistant dean worried in that manner, the very first year of what was once called the, quote, tuition spiral, unquote. When higher ed prices got the attention of the media by outpacing inflation by a factor of two or three. There was something shocking about this development. Tuition hadn't gone up like that during the 1970s, even though that was the heyday of ascending consumer prices. Yet at that point, the tuition spiral had more than three decades to go. Indeed, it is still twisting upward today. But the way we talk about this slow motion disaster has changed little over the years. Ever since the spiral began, commentators have been marveling at how far it's gone and wondering how much further it has to run. The trend can't continue, they say every few years. They ask when the families and politicians of America are finally going to get off their knees and do something about it. But somehow, nothing ever gets done. The trend does continue. And for 30 years, the journalists who cover the subject have followed the same pointless script. They have hunted fruitlessly for the legitimate expenses that they knew must be driving up the prices. They have chased repeatedly after the wrong answers, blaming everybody and everything except for the obvious culprits. Skipping ahead, reading back over the journalistic accounts of the tuition spiral from the 80s and 90s, you get the impression that all concerned felt it was a wee bit uncouth to dig too deeply into into a university's pricing practices or suspect the sachems of higher learning who presided over them of anything inappropriate. These were the journalists' beloved alma maters, after all. Surely they had our best interests at heart. And so, beginning in the 1980s, university administrators, their words dutifully transcribed... And so, beginning in the 80s, university administrators, their words dutifully transcribed by journalists, blamed utility bills for soaring tuition. They blamed libraries, which made a certain amount of sense until libraries went dramatically out of fashion in the internet age, and yet tuition prices still went up. They blamed professors, of course, since professors are the most visible part of a university because it's easy to hate professors. Sometimes university spokesmen would claim that colleges were being forced to spend a lot in order to hire the very best professors an academic echo of the reasoning corporate America uses to explain fat executive salaries. On other occasions, however, they would claim they were being forced to spend a lot because professors nowadays were lazy and didn't want to teach, and so they were forced to hire an expanded roster of them to offer all their courses. Both excuses were plausible on paper, and there's probably some university president somewhere who's still blaming professors for his insane tuition bills, but these alibis only make sense until the outside world figured out that universities were actually using graduate students and adjuncts to teach their courses, and yet still, tuition prices were mounting at an insane clip. Administrators also blamed tuition inflation on onerous government regulations, which they said forced them to hire bureaucrats to fill out forms. Sometimes they did this even when they themselves had lobbied the government regulation in question. They blamed students who were supposedly demanding all manner of luxuries and would not be denied. 
The administrators blamed society, which was forcing them to be high-tech and culturally diverse. In one of the most curious bits of blame evasion, a 1990 report commissioned by the College Board actually attributed rising tuition prices to a declining student population. Like all other excuses, this got university administrators off the hook, but it also raised troubling questions. Ordinarily, reduced demand makes prices go down, not up. That the opposite was happening implied that colleges had the power to simply impose their costs on the student population, regardless of that population's size or wishes. Skipping ahead, what were journalists to do after ringing the alarm bells for so many years without effect? Well, there was one easy answer, to discover that there wasn't really any problem in the first place. That the tuition spiral was entirely reasonable, even if one could not actually explain it. How? Well, if you examine what has come to be called the college wage premium, the difference between what is earned by college grads and high school grads, it becomes clear that someone who finishes four years at a university will eventually earn far more than they spend to go there, even at the crazy tuition prices of recent decades. Today, this is a universal way of considering the situation, always leading us to conclude that going to college is, quote, worth it, unquote, and that it is a, quote, bargain, unquote, that it, quote, pays off, unquote. Later in the piece, Frank goes back in time, noting that in 1981, the old order was crumbling. The soldiers of the free market were strapping on their Adam Smith neckties, and colleges all across America were deciding they needed to jack up tuition prices far in excess of the rate of inflation, something they had not done before. Frank goes on to compare the Reagan administration's um, attitude about colleges, which they were always hostile to, noting that uh, what's changed is they aren't our institutions of higher education anymore. He said maybe they never were, but not too long ago it was possible to think of them. From Milton Friedman's University of Chicago all the way down to Michelle Bachman's Winona State University as serving some sort of public function. Whether founded by the grace of Rockefeller or by the act of the Minnesota legislature, they manufactured good citizens. They taught us scientific farming techniques. Hell, they built the atomic bomb and created the internet. This is why our government subsidized and still subsidizes them with grants and earmarks and tax abatements and preferential treatment of every description. But the other part of the bargain doesn't work the way it used to anymore. Everyone in the age of inequality knows that the purpose of a college education isn't to benefit the nation, it's to give the private individual a shot at achieving a high net worth. Agreeing upon that, everyone from state legislators to the Secretary of Education naturally began to ask, why should I pay for someone else to get rich? These people need to foot the bill themselves. According to a landmark 1988 magazine article by Barry Worth, this was the Shivas Regal argument, the idea that college was a luxury good and should be treated as such. Forget all the bullwah about diversity and lazy professors driving up tuition. Price increases in those days became virtually an end in themselves something colleges did simply to burnish their prestigious brand image. Said Frank, that's why these days even the once sanctimonious New York Times runs stories openly treating the most expensive colleges as brands, as class signifiers. Anyway, I recommend, dear listener, that you read uh, this entire piece. I'm sure if you Google Thomas Frank and colleges are full of it, it'll pop right up. All right, someone who's not full of it is America's foremost political comic, Mr. Will Durst.
Hey guys. Will Durst here with a few choice words about all the smartphones out there being wielded by all the dumb people like me. We are living in a science fiction movie, slowly turning into a nation of phone zombies, staggering down streets with our heads bowed, making the occasional grunting noise, turning others into zombies by showing 47 pictures of their neighbor's cute cat. It's the invasion of the body snatchers in action. Oh, sure, we can check weather patterns in Outer Mongolia or order a chess set made out of imitation crab meat in the shape of Marvel superheroes and have it delivered before we get home, but in the meantime, we are developing the attention span of high-speed lint. Zombies who can't remember our own phone numbers, much less any significant other. Of course, compared to our phones, there are no significant others. Zombies in public restrooms clogging up stalls for hours playing a quick round of Angry Birds. The same zombies would get into their cars and refuse to leave parking spots until they've checked in with high command. Vacations are just excuses for we zombies to stare at our phones in distant exotic lands. Smartphones are like congressmen. We hate them all except for our own. Fortunately, most of us don't hate him as much as the ex-cop who shot a kid for texting in a movie theater, but be honest, you've thought about it. Who hasn't politely churned when we thought someone was addressing us, only to find it was some zombie in a suit on a Bluetooth? But the worst are the suited Bluetooth zombies in an elevator. Shut up, dirt wipe. From now on, it should be legal to punch elevator zombies right in the ear. Tell them it's for the sake of civilization. For Radio Parallax, I'm Will Durst. It's the, it's the end of the world as we know it. It's well, we're not sure we can save civilization here in this program, but we're going to keep trying for a while. In fact, we're going to make a point to devote our entire third segment to good news. <laughs> Don't go away. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. As we know it.